0: Amen. This is going to be a beefy one today, y'all. Uh, it's always beefy. Pray the Lord. Pray the Lord. Man, y'all got to, It's recording, right? It's recording? Good, good, good. Let's give a hand for a catch on the soundboard in the back. Man, for centuries, for centuries, Christians have been. Not fighting, but discussing the relationship um, between the law and the gospel. Um, It is probably one of the most uncharted discussions um, in relation to believers really understanding it. Over my time as a, as a, as a believer, I've always worked through, tried to work through and struggle through, you know, how do Christians today actually relate to the law? And I think Paul is, is not, he, he's, he, that's kind of going to be a sidebar for him, but I, I think that that's going to be a good a sidebar and explanation that we need to work through as believers. I know certain groups of Christians, one, one sect of Christianity, um, who I won't name them, but they don't believe that you use the Old Testament at all. So all they preach is the New Testament. And uh, I think that it's, it's it's a biblical impossibility to read the New Testament and ignore the Old Testament. It is a biblical irresponsibility to do so. And it's a misunderstanding of Jesus, the apostles, and their delegates. And so today we're going to dive into something. I'm going to talk. It's a dude in the first century that Iranius Ar- and Tertullian had to fight off. And his name, he was a heretic named Marcion. Marcion was the first guy that we know of to actually develop a Bible canon. Stay with me. As soon as I say first century and start naming dudes' names, y'all ain't heard it. Like, ain't nobody around the block named Tertullian and Iranius. So y'all, like, y'all, like, zon- zonked out on me. So stay with me. Uh, this grown up Christianity stuff. So stay with me, family. And so one of the things in in, in there, in in his understanding, Marcion began a cult. And he basically took like ten of Paul's, uh, rejected uh, several of Paul's books, rejected the Old Testament, and began a cult. And one of the things that Marcion taught was that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. He taught that the Old Testament God was a fleshly God, and the New Testament God was a spiritual God. Jesus Christ came to free us from the tyranny of the fleshly God. Well, as crazy as that sounds to us, folks were falling for it in in, in the second century, right after the apostles died. Because of that, Tertullian wrote like five books against them. Um, he was meeting people in the marketplace, taking them around corners behind, uh, the, b- behind fish tables and vegetable tables and, and, and fruit tables, and talking to them about his version of Christianity. What's funny about Marcion is he would—if you say, "Do you believe in?" If you, you share the gospel, he'd say yes to everything you said, but behind what he's saying, he'd mean totally different things. And so, and so, and so, this is why we we take time to go through with pains, verse by verse. And talk through doctrines because we want people to understand your faith. So you're not just ignorantly uh, walking. Well, I know what he did for me. That ain't doctrine. That ain't doctrine, fam. Well, I, I, all I know is, you know, you know. All I know is where I what used to be, I ain't no more. I, today, I'm better than. That, that ain't doctrine. That ain't that ain't doctrine. Your spiritual growth or you being better is not the gospel. Like, anybody can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and say, I'm better. So, so it's, it's, it's of paramount importance that Christians understand their faith, because Marcion wasn't the first heretic. We got heretics today. So because we have heretics today, and being a part of the eldership here, my responsibility and our responsibility is to shepherd the flock, but protect you from things. And so today Paul talks, we're going to get into Paul, and, and I want to talk about today the supremacy of faith in the gospel. The supremacy of faith in the gospel. This this is this is important as we go through this, because one of the things that people must understand is faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, 1, that faith is what? The substance of things hoped for. And the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance. In other words, let me explain this because as we're going through Galatians and we're talking about faith and grace and we're talking about the gospel, let's just, let's just, let's just get an understanding of faith for a minute. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What's that substance? Things that God has promised. Not stuff that we come up with. Let me say that again. Substance is what God promises, not what you want. Ah, So that means first, faith has to be in the right place, in the right person. Now, you don't say, I'm holding on to my faith. No, you don't hold on to your faith because that means you're having faith in your faith and your faith is the object of your faith. No, biblically, biblically. Let me let me let me explain that to you. See, I'm, I'm holding on to my faith. I, you know, I, I, I'm just I'm just I'm, like people say, man, your faith has made you well. What Jesus is saying is, faith in me has made you well. Now, most people have faith in their faith. In other words, based on their 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 depression quotient is based on how their faith tank is. Let me explain that. If you feel like you're believing today, the then you're in a good mood. If you don't feel like you're believing today then you're in a bad mood. But it's not because you're believing in Christ that makes you in a bad mood. It's because your faith in your faith is weakening that self-esteem, personal worth, all that stuff. You're always going to be spiritually bipolar and up and down. So faith is the substance of things hoped for. Stay with me. Faith is the substance, what God promises. Paul's going to talk about it today. God's promises of things hoped. Let's talk about hope. Hope is, without hope, there can't be faith. Now, substance and hope are parts of the equation of faith. Faith is a spiritual mathematic equation without God's substance, and without hope, faith is not able to be executed or had. Now, let me explain hope. Hope is the visual picture believed and embraced by the believer's mind as able to happen. So if if God says, I want you to bear fruit like Pastor Deuce was talking about today, the question is, are you hoping for fruit? In other words, the visual picture of how God keeps score is that in your mind. That's why the Bible says, keep your mind on things where? Above. Hope. Okay? Now, what faith does is faith says, not only will I visualize the picture, not only will I understand God's substance, but what I'll do is I'll move towards it. So hope without hope, without a mental or visual picture of what God promises, you cannot have faith. So when he says faith is the substance of things hoped for, in other words, it's clear, but evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen just points to the fact that God has given, because we don't have a blind faith, we don't have a subjective faith, we have an objective faith. Meaning that faith in God being our object is concrete. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Even though you haven't seen it, even though you, it hasn't been fully brought to pass, it doesn't stop the belief in that happening. Because hope in God's substance gives you a visual picture of a preferred eternal future. That's very important in relation to faith. My father in the ministry always explained. he says, faith is acting like God is telling the truth. In other words, you're lining up your life that God is actually telling the truth. So as we get in this, we're going to talk about why faith in the gospel is supreme. Um, it kind of plays on Hebrews here. The book of Hebrews. We're going to be, uh, I hope you got your Bibles. Because we're going to be all over it. I, I meant to have them give out like a thing so you can know the books of the Bible. because we're going to be all over the Bible today. Y'all ready? All right, so my first point. This brings me to my first point. Faith in the gospel is supreme to all covenants that followed it. Faith in the gospel is supreme to all the covenants that followed it. Look, 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 look in these verses. These, these are some beautiful verses. They're they meaty, though. It says to, to um, verse 15 of chapter 3. It says, to give a human example, brothers, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular. Who is who? Christ. This is what I meant This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Faith in the gospel is supreme to all the covenants that follow. Now, before I dive into these verses, verse by verse, let me explain what a covenant is, and let me explain what a promise is, because 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 we don't want to assume that anybody knows anything. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two or more people. A covenant, and then there's several types of covenants. But they have kind of a play on them. Now, there are explicit and implicit covenants. In other words, one that's explicitly stated as a covenant being cut. I'm going to explain all this, so stay with me. And there are there explicit and implicit covenants. In other words, like a vow would be an implicit covenant because it is a covenant implied based on your word being bombed. Now, there's what's called a bilateral covenant and a unilateral covenant. Stay with me. Bilateral, unilateral. That means conditional and unconditional covenants. In other words, conditional covenants means that you and the, you and the other party have, have promises that you make to keep the covenant. If you don't keep the covenant, the covenant is broken. Now, there's a unilateral covenant, which is an unconditional covenant. This is a beautiful one. This is the one we're going to talk a lot about today. See, a unilateral covenant or an unconditional covenant, one person pledges to fulfill the covenant without the help of the other person. See, in other words, no matter what you do, I'm going to fulfill the covenant. Matter of fact, you can sit down, chill out, cause I'm going to make it happen. See, there are two types of covenants. Now we're going to, we're going to walk through these today. Now what is a promise? A promise is what Ask you. All right. A, a promise is the bylaws of a covenant. In other words, when you make a promise that I am going to do blase, 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 then that is what makes the covenant a covenant. The promise that is made. Are y'all with me? So you got the covenant, which is a legally binding agreement between two or more people. You have conditional covenants, which is between those two people. You have unilateral or unconditional covenants that's between both of those people, but only one is fulfilling a promise, which is the bylaws of the covenant. Y'all still with me? So right here in this text, we see Paul laying out the supremacy of faith above the law. Now, what he does here is Paul says, to give you a human example. Now, he's given a human example. He says, he says, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it uh, after it has been uh, ratified or confirmed as an actual covenant, right? And so he says, now the promises, plural, were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many but one. So in Genesis chapter twelve, in Genesis chapter fifteen, and in Genesis chapter seventeen and Genesis chapter twenty four, we're gonna go through Genesis fifteen because that thing is so that thing is so lethal. I I just wish I could just preach chapter fifteen today. I mean it don't make no kind of earthly sense how beefy Genesis chapter fifteen is. But man, right up here in this text man, you see you see where God makes several promises to Abraham. That's called what we call no matter what size of the hermeneutical stream you're on, there is it's the it's the Abrahamic covenant which is made up of what? God promises that there will be land God promises that there will be seed, and then God promises that there will be a blessing. Okay? So when you look in this text... Paul doesn't focus in on the land and the blessing part per se. He focuses on the seed part. In other words, that Abraham is going to have an offspring and that this Abraham, the Abrahamic offspring is going to be the conduit by which the land is received and by which the blessing is received. But then by which the whole world is blessed in relation to this offspring. Now, Abraham had. Near and far offspring, singular. Now, his near offspring was Isaac, okay, and Israel as a group, one group. So, near offspring. Paul is wagering, he says, I know that, that, that the implications of the word offspring in Genesis can mean a multiplicity, even though it's singular. However, far-reaching and, 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 and without, I don't, without the full realization of Abraham, even though God, based on the earlier part of chapter 3, preached the gospel to him, his far-offspring, singular, is Jesus. So so, so when he's, when he's talking about this offspring, he's talking about the fact that These were, there were several covenants up to this point, and I'm gonna talk about them. There was the, the Edenic covenant, there was the Adamic covenant, and, 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 and and you had the Noahic covenant, but then you have right here the Abrahamic covenant. Now, what makes this different is we see that faith was always a requirement. Remember we talked about that. Like, faith is nothing new. Like, People always acting like there was no, like the God of the Old Testament was different. All he wanted was works. He didn't want any faith. No. When you read Hebrews chapter 11, it lines up with the fact that faith was always a requirement. Stay with me. But then he goes through and he says in verse 16, he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say um, to, uh, to all springs referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is and to your offspring, who is Christ? Who is Christ? He says, "This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years after does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God." This is dope because what he's arguing is the Judaizers that are influencing these Gentile believers is trying to tell them that look. You need to you need to be saved based on your works and commitment to the mosaic law. Paul says, see, that's where you're messed up, fam. Because the Palestinian covenant or the law, the institution of the law, the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic law, was not the first covenant. In other words, you can't have God making a covenant and adding to the documentation. In other words, whenever God makes a covenant with someone. He doesn't add to the covenant and he doesn't take away from the covenant because that will make him a liar. So Paul is bringing up, he says, listen, if he made a promise to Abraham and he made promises to Moses, the question is, are they contradictory or are they now now, 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 Paul's issue is this. He said, fam, let me explain something to you. And I'm going to talk about the two purposes. He says, listen, the promise that God made to Abraham does not annul, does, does not annul the law and nor does the law stop. Listen, nor does the law stop the Abrahamic covenant from coming to pass. Y'all still with me? And so, and so what he's saying is, is this doesn't, he says faith has always been a specific and clear requirement. So, so, so in that being a clear requirement of him, what happens is, is that the Abrahamic covenant actually influences the law. Stay with me because this is fat stuff right here. So the, God's covenant with Abraham could not be altered. The two nature of covenants. So check it out. It's, um, like other legal documents, testaments and wills were sealed so that they could not be altered. Of course, in Greek law, uh, wills were irrevocable. One could not impose new conditions, remove an heir, even if one even if uh, added a supplementary testament. And you'll see that in Deuteronomy 21 verses 15 through 17. Now let's compare the two covenants. Hold your finger in Galatians. And turn over to Genesis chapter fifteen. This banging. All right, check it out. I'm gonna read this whole thing. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram, in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, "O oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And, and, and behold, the Lord of the Lord came to him. This Man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And and, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then it says, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said to him, O oh Lord, how, will, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought, all, brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now, this is interesting. So Abraham know that God is about to make a covenant with him. He cuts them in half and sets them up, but he didn't cut the birds in half. Now, check this out. This is banging. It says, and the sun was gro- going down, a deep sleep fell upon him. So Abraham, you know, a bunch of buzzards, you know, every time you kill something, you know, they out in the wilderness. You know what I'm saying? So buzzards walking up and carrying on, trying to get all up on the altar. And Abraham, about, you know, he old. He like 75 or something. He He's trying to drive him. I mean, I can't see him. I don't know where he. Got Got a cane, some you know, trying to get him away, right? Now check it out. Now he says, then the then the men set out. Then then it says right after that, it says it says as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dread, uh, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be are servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. Check this out. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Abraham still sleep. Behold, a smoking a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, uh, I will give this land. Now, the smoking pot is representative of the Lord. Why? God put Abraham to sleep and God walked between them. When God walked between the sacrifices, whenever a person made a covenant, what they would say is, I, will, I swear to commit suicide if I do not commit myself to this covenant. God says when he walks between it, I mean, God can't commit suicide. Like, how are you going to kill himself? He's eternal. But God walks through it, and he says, I'm swearing by myself. I'm going to put you to sleep. Like, I'm not even going to make you promise anything. Go to sleep, chill out, like you need to know, all right, I'm about, I'm about to walk through the sacrifice. And God himself, in the form of fire, walks through the sacrifices to make an unconditional, unilateral covenant with Abraham. And God says, I swear by my own life that what I say I'm going to do to you and do for you, I'm going to do. And so what makes this so dope is, is that this bypass, this oversees, and this goes through the covenant of the law. So my man, my man, my man, Paul is saying, yo, man, like the covenant that God made through Abraham was a covenant that God swore to bring to pass and that no human work would have anything to do with it coming to pass. And so he says, this, uh, that's why he says in verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years after does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promises, but God gave it to Abraham by promise god gave it to abraham by promise so christ jesus of course through christ so in christ being his heir christ is the fulfiller of all of the covenants see what christ but so beefy about christ is christ doesn't promise to merely fulfill the abrahamic covenant because all of the covenants although they don't they don't stop other covenants what they do is is they work together which i'm going to talk about in a minute but so what you see here is Christ is the, is, is the warrior of Adam that is going to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. Jesus is the true Noahic wrath revealer and order restorer, Genesis 8 through Genesis 11:31. Uh, Jesus, the true Mosaic prophet, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 18, where, 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 where God covenants with Abraham to say, "Yo, I am going to raise up a prophet after you, just like me." And Jesus is the true Davidic king. Now, the, eight, the now, now all of those covenants demanded faith. Every every last single one of those covenants, all of them demanded faith. And so, what Jesus is, Jesus is called the key of David. Now, the key of David that means. Jesus is the one who unlocks kingdom promises. Not not us. You can name it. You can claim it. You can blab it. You can grab it. You can call it and you can haul it. But let me just tell you something. Jesus is the only one that can unlock. The Bible calls him in Revelation chapter 3 the key of David. In other words, he is the one who has the key, holds the key of David. In other words, he unlocks kingdom promises. All of those promises are revealed and, and, and brought to fruition in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So previously ratified, of course, ratified just means to make in advance. So listen, the law, this is a note I made to myself, the law only allowed for temporal enjoyment, basic enjoyments of the Abrahamic covenant without the ability to enjoy the full messianic implications of the promises. So what you have is in chapter 17, God does make a conditional bilateral covenant with Abraham, in, the, in, the, in circumcision. However, the people under the law continue that work and expanded upon it. That's why when you look in a Deuteronomy, because it's a conditional, co- a bilateral conditional covenant, you'll see, you know, Fred, said, you're blessed in the city, you're blessed in the field. That whole song are they singing about a conditional covenant, not a unilateral covenant. So when you look, it says, if you do this, then I will. So the law only allowed for physical enjoyment of the Abrahamic covenant, not spiritual enjoyment of the Abrahamic covenant. They got to go into the land. They got multiplied. They got blessing and they got seed and seed is always pointed through through circumcision but they didn't get to enjoy the spiritual implications of it. Why? Because the law was a pointer. And so everything about it was pointing to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and so the Abrahamic covenant runs into and influences all covenants in order to bring those covenants to total fruition. Now, number two, faith in the gospel and works of the law were a complement To the coming of Jesus, faith in the gospel and the works of the law were a complement to the coming of Jesus. Verse nineteen, he says, "Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was um, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one." But God is one. Now, Paul now, based on him saying, listen, the, the law doesn't annul the Abrahamic covenant or faith and faith alone as a means for salvation. It doesn't stop it. But what he does, it, he always he always thinks through what people are going to ask him. So the first question he asked, he said, I know what you're thinking. Why do we even have a law? So now he's going to explain to them what the purpose of the law was. Okay, so when he when he talks about the purpose of the law, he says it was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law was added. It it did not add to the conditions of the Abrahamic covenant, but because of transgressions. In other words, because man was wigging out. Man had no Holy Ghost. Man was acting a plumb fool and didn't have God's laws on his heart. He was cutting a fool. And because Genesis said God even got, God was just, I mean, ain't nothing blow God away, but in anthropomorphic language, it describes God as like, dude, these cats are crazy. Like they, I mean, they're they just wigging out out here. And so what happened is, is later is God's like, man, I got to set something up and lay something down. And get these cats some parameters, or or they're going to lose their plumb mind. So God gives uh, gives your man Moses um, the law. Now, the law was never meant by works of the law shall no flesh be justified, Romans 3.20. In other words, the law was never to make you righteous. The purpose of the law was to show you that you weren't. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's something wrong with us in relation to the law. Now nobody is able to keep the law. Now the Sermon on the Mount was about Jesus exposing their inability to keep the law. See, a lot of he said you heard it said, but I said to you, notice that Jesus didn't change the law; he changed their relationship to how they viewed the law. He says, "You said you you like like the Pharisees believe you could just divorce a woman. Oh, I don't like her anymore. Ah, oh, she's getting too fat. I got to get rid of her. He, I mean, that's what they believe. Jesus says." Uh, 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 you, you heard it said, you heard it said that, that you, this is how you commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look on her to lust, like you ain't even start. You just, your purpose for putting your eyes on her is to lust, uh, It's shut down. You already committed adultery. Now, what they had, what they did is, man, so slick, you know, we just slick and just trifling. We won't just admit that we jacked up. You know what I'm saying? He, they make laws to make sure that you're keeping the law. So they made the Midrash and the, and the Mishnah. Basically to say, this is what it looks like to keep the law. So this is to calm their consciousness of the fact that they're flunking. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is showing you, yo man, like the law was meant to give you a moral, moral parameters because man is immoral. And so, and so basically it was added because of the increase of transgressions. But Paul also says in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 verse 8, He says in verse 8 through 11, he says, Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just before the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners. So, so, again, Paul restates the fact that the law is given because man doesn't have any boundaries. Now, I'm going to talk about the Christian relationship to the law because I think this is going to be important. I'm going to talk about, talk about that in one second. But one of the things that I, that I do want to talk about is how Westerners break down the law. Now, what's the purpose of the law in relation to transgressions and all that Paul is talking about? I, I saw something interesting here. You know, we, we as Westerners, we are so linear. We don't just say law. We got to break them down in types of laws. There are three types of laws. There, there, there are ceremonial laws their moral laws, and their civic laws. Now, each one of those act as a precursor to the spirit coming. Because ceremonial law, moral law, and civic law had three different purposes. The ceremonial law was for worship. The the moral law was for character development and proper practice. Civil law was for judgment, litigation, and government. Now, the purpose of the ceremonial law in worship was to deal with sin. The purpose of the moral law in dealing with character and practice is to deal with righteousness. The civic law and government was to deal with judgment. So what do you see? Under the law, the conviction of man of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what you see right here is being a precursor to the coming of the Spirit. The, 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 the law was to point man without, listen, with, with, without any solution to the fact that he's separated from God, that he's tore up, and that God is going to come wreck shop. Now, when you look at most of the laws, all of the laws are going to point you to one of those areas, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the question is, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Good question, Paul. Look at verse Look at verse 21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, now, I know what you're thinking. Now that I've said that the law has a different purpose than the promises, you think that they don't work together. He says, but they do work together. He says, so he says, certainly not. He says, heck no. It, 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 they're not contrary to one another. But they complement one another. So let's talk about the function of God's unconditional promises and the function of the law. Unconditional promises, conditional promises. It says, for if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He says, but the scripture, talking about the law, and specifically, but also the prophets and the writings, imprisoned everything under sin. So this is how they complement each other. The law had the function of exposing man's sin, but the, promise, but the function of promises is to point to restoration and life that can be given by grace. And so what the law did is say, man, you tow up. Man, you jacked up, man. You can't even keep this. Uh, the, the guy got, they got a tie thread around my man's ankle just in case he didn't put his coat on right when he went into the holy of so holy. Man, he fall dead. They, they say, you going in there? I ain't going in there. You going in there? I ain't dropping dead. I ain't a priest. And they say, and they pull him out. So, can you imagine the priest being just dragged out dead? God done dropped him dead because he didn't go into the holy of so holy right. And so, and so, in other words, they had to go up every year for Yom Kippur. But but see both but see both timelines are different. See the timeline of the law is different because look at the word look at the word in verse verse nineteen it says until the offspring. Look at verse verse twenty two, it says, in prison until the coming of faith would be revealed. So the law had time limits. In other words, God had put time limits on the law as the rule of thumb by which man and him would relate to one another through the law. In other words, there were time constraints on it. However, the Abrahamic covenant didn't have time restraints on it. Because it's a perpetual, eternal covenant fulfilled in Christ. So what happens is the Abrahamic covenant—I wish I had developed that chart—it it overarches and connects and pulls in the new covenant, but it goes through, it goes through um, the, the the covenant of the law. And so what happens is, is even during the law, faith was supposed—they're supposed to point back to yo man. What about that offspring you were talking about? Like, that's what was supposed to happen in relation to always being convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So they're not contrary to one another. They have different types of timelines. So the Abrahamic covenant does not have time constraints, but the law does. Both are fulfilled, of course, in the coming of Jesus. Jesus didn't say that I came to, to stop the law or put an end to the law but I came to bring the law to its full completion. In other words to fulfill the law. How do you fulfill the law? To love the Lord your God with all your mind with all your soul and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself Jesus committed his life to totally loving the Father and not only did he totally commit his life to loving the Father but he died on the cross to fully commit to the reality of the fact that he loved mankind and so Jesus fulfilled the law. However he also fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant because he was uh, in the lineage of Abraham, so Jesus, both of them, pointed to Jesus. Now, how does Scripture imprison? How does Scripture imprison us? It, it says that it says that the, it says, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in, in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. It just put them on layaway. In other words, cats wasn't really clean. It just appeased God, but was supposed to point to Christ. So this sins was on lay. Every time they did it, sins wasn't going away, but they were put on layaway. You know when something put on layaway, you paying on it. But the difference between natural, natural layaway and spiritual layaway is there really didn't count towards. Eradicating their sin, it just held, it just allowed God's wrath to be appeased temporarily to hold on to sin until Jesus Christ came. So they were in prison. They were in prison to perpetually, to perpetually finding out what it looks like in your own strip to, to appease God with human works. That's why works don't work. That's why when I told you whole witness, I said, why you ain't depressed, man? So why you ain't depressed? Faith and work say, I said, man, look. I said, man, you ain't got, you, you, you ain't got the muscular endurance uh, to fulfill God's promises. How do you say that faith and work say, like, it's a biblical impossible Well, work is a work. Faith is a work, isn't it? Faith is, that's what they always say. Faith. I said, no, it's a non-meritorious work. In other words, it's not a, faith is a work, but it's a work that's not counted as a work that uh, adds to the account, but it becomes because of the account of Christ. That's the difference. And so what we're talking about here is Paul is railing about this because there are people out there, but you gotta. I know you say, but you gotta, but you gotta. And all of the but you got us is nothing but man's arrogance in trying to not give all the glory of Jesus to Jesus, but to take some glory from himself. You know, we can't just give glory. We can't. We can't big up somebody else without being involved with it. You know, I got, like, you know how people say, you gotta give it up. Like, the, the fact that you say you gotta give it up means I really don't want to, but I'ma do it. Like, that's not the focus of what Paul is talking about. He's trying to talk about the fact that this stuff was in prison. It kind of reminds me, it kind of reminds me of uh, uh, me and my son watching the Justice League. And man, on one of the episodes, it was a dude named Kronos. He was smart than He had a belt on, and he had a Kronos suit. And basically, he had made this belt that could that that was like a time machine so he can go to any time period and so and so um, he had messed up the time continuum that the sky was disappearing everything was disappearing and so batman got near him and and they say they said what you going to do? how we going to do he said oh i've developed a program that's going to shut down his belt and so batman goes into him and slides a a, a disc about this small into his belt and then all of a sudden everything's back to normal and and, um him and him and another dude sitting at the table he says you remember he says, yeah i remember wonder woman came to the table and they were looking at her like, do you remember? She's like, no, nah, I don't remember. they was like, okay, cool. Then the main man was like, yo, man, what, what did you, uh, Green Lantern was like, what did you do to him? <laughs> he started laughing. Then you go back, Karnas is at his house in the same time period. So basically, the time before he was about to mess up the time period, it kept repeating. He would say, honey, I am at." his wife would fuss at him, and he fussed back. Then it would start over again. And then he'd start fussing at and they fuss back, and they start over again. Then he fuss back and fuss back, and they start over again. Well, see, that's what the law did. The law kept you doing over and over and over and over again without experiencing the next time, and so when Jesus came, He stopped the repetition of "I'm mad at you, you're mad at me, I'm mad at you, you're mad at me, I'm mad at you." See, what Jesus comes is He comes and takes the disc out of your belt, which is the which is the function of the law. And what He does, He says, "Listen, I'm going to let you fully experience everything that God promised," and so. The question on the floor is, how do believers relate to the law? How do the believer relate to the law? Do you know that we're supposed to utilize the law? Uh oh. Uh oh. We people getting scared in the room now. Like there are aspects of the ceremonial law that you don't have to do. We don't have to do anymore. However, we do because what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? We got to all turn together. Second Timothy. (laughs) <laughs> 3 15 we're going to start there 2 Timothy 3 15 it says and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Faith in Christ Jesus. So, Timothy was actually well taught by his grandma and his mama. So his grandma and mama used to walk him through the the, the law of the prophets and the writings growing up. Come here, Timothy. Come here, Timothy. What's Levitic What's the main purpose of Leviticus? Um, God is holy. It says God is holy. We should be holy like him. Oh, you got it, baby. You got it, baby. Who created what? In the beginning. In the, be- in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was like, okay, okay, okay. What's, what, what, what do we say? What, what are we supposed to say as Israel? Uh, 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 Israel, Israel, Adonai, Elenehu, Hamad. What does that mean, son? Son, Yeho, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Okay, good, Timothy. You're so smart. And walking them through the law, walking them through the law. And all of a sudden, when when Paul went to Iconium, Lister, and Derby and preached the gospel, The key of David unlocked everything. And so what happened is, is everything that he was learning about Yom Kippur, the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, all of these different things, like it was like the light came on. Like, I'm jealous of our Jewish brothers. Because they get to learn all, then they come to Christ and they're like, the wow, it's just like automatic spiritual, almost spiritual immaturity. Because they got, I mean, I'm so angry. They got the implications of that thing. So they can see the death of Christ in a way that, that, that we can't, right? And so, and, so, and, so, and so, but look what he says. He says, all scripture, stopped there. The New Testament wasn't written when he said that. It wasn't fully finished. The New Testament believers was utilizing the Old Testament for spiritual growth and preaching of the gospel before the New Testament was complete. So people that tell you the Old Testament shouldn't be used, that's heresy. Now he says all scripture, he's talking about Genesis to Malachi. That means there's something in there for the Christian. Some of y'all, are like, I, ain't, I don't care what you say, I ain't read no Obadiah. <laughs> Obadiah, I don't even know. What, Ezekiel, he's talking about wings and flapping and I don't know. Most of y'all are just like Psalms and Proverbs. I'm comfortable there. It's clear, blood out. Psalms and Proverbs, Psalms and Proverbs. You gotta stretch yourself. Read Ecclesiastes. Read Zephaniah. Y'all don't even know what that is. Read that. in the Bible? Zephaniah? <laughs> it says all scripture. God didn't waste a verse. But the issue is, you're supposed to read it in light of faith. And who? Jesus. You do your homework in the text. And then you say, where do pictures and footprints and shadows of Jesus show up? Because the Bible says that those things were types and shadows. Now, if the tabernacle was a picture of things in heaven, I want to know what the tabernacle was like because I want to know what heaven going to look like. People always wonder, what's heaven going to look like? Go look at the tabernacle based on Hebrews. Somebody say, well, why, why would I use the Old Testament? Well, Jesus said, and starting in Luke 23, he said, and starting with Moses. He showed them all of the things in scripture concerning himself. Them cats got so far, they said, Whoa, whoa, man, oh, burning like a mug, man. Where'd that cat go? <laughs> Using the old testament scriptures. Man, I, I give everything I got to be on the road to mess. I'd be like an invisible being walking behind going like this. I'm telling you, I, I want to hear the whole conversation. He said he showed them all. Uh, Jesus laughing at the Pharisees. They, they fronting on them. He's like, oh, y'all are always up in the scriptures, rolling out the scrolls, rolling out the scrolls. But let me tell you, he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life. But, but if you really knew God, all of them speak of me. So do you know that the Old Testament is Christian scripture? Some of y'all thought y'all like the epistles because it just get kind of straight to the point. But you need to learn how to struggle by faith. Because see, the focus is the supremacy of faith. That means that through faith, through the key of David, he unlocks the premises of all of it for you. Not just for the preacher, not just for the bishop, not just for the apostle, (laughs) but for the believer. I'm gonna come to the man of God and I will teach you all of the things that's in the Bible. I'll I'll tell you right now. I come to the man of God on Friday. I'll be greasing your head with oil and giving out napkins. Now you can get up, you can get up in the Bible yourself. Now, now you can't be coming up with no Marsian type stuff, yo man. I've been reading lately, and I think it's too like, no, we in community now. So run your stuff by somebody. Don't be talking about nothing. If it's new, it ain't true, family. If, it, if it's new, it ain't true. <laughs> and so you see, you see Paul talking about the premise of the law. Then he says, then he says in verse. Back over to Galatians, Paul says. He says, twenty three. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Stop there. The law was the law was our guardian. We get our it's the, um, pedagogy where we get our word um, pedagogy from. Basically, tutor or teacher. It meant the slave assigned to this role would watch out for the student on his way to school, and help him with his manners and schoolwork. But he was not the teacher himself. Children sometimes resented, but often grew fond of their slave guardians and later freed them. Such guardians were also normally better educated than the free masses. The image is not intrinsically meaning, but it means. But it talks about the idea of the fact that the that the law was a tutor. So what the law was supposed to do is basically tutor the believer to look for Jesus. But people, but but people got but people got so bogged down with the law they left the premises of the law. Because the purpose of the law was to point the believer to Jesus. Everything, for, if you read the Old, you need to be looking for Him, looking for Him, and and now you can look back in the law and commit to it by faith. Why? Why? When it talks, the law talks about sexual purity. The law talks about marriage. The law, the, the law, the law talks about working. When not to work. The law teaches you to chill out sometimes. You you, you work too much. The law teaches a whole bunch of things that we miss out on because we're afraid of it. We're afraid of digging in. And so so, so, so what we need to be able to do, and Paul's point in this passage is it's beautiful because he goes in, he says, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. He says, "But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian." He says, "For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith." Now he's talking about the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles under Jesus Christ. So he's been, so this is where he's going. His point of this passage is to show them: don't try to make the Gentile believers believe in the gospel. I mean, believe in uh, the law as a way of sanctification without faith in Jesus Christ as the empowerer of how you grow spiritually. He says, but what you are to do is to properly use the Old Testament or the law, prophets, and writings based on their original purpose with Christ in view. But then he goes forth and takes it to its natural conclusion. He says, and this brings me to my last point, I'm, I'm getting out of your way. He, said, he says, finally, he says, he says, for in Christ... You are all sons of God in Christ. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in the Christ, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. You put on Christ. So when you trusted Christ. As Lord and Savior, it's talking about spirit baptism in which the spirit we talked about a few weeks ago, the spirit scrubbing us off and causing us to be born again, thereby placing us into the sheepfold that Jesus talked about in John 10. I have sheep that are not of this fold, but I must get them and bring them to bring them, connect them with this fold in order that they may become one sheep, one group of sheep with one flock leader, and that's me. And so then he goes and he says, now, "Now, when you look on, you can just go through the scriptures on just what it means to put on, like put on, put on the Lord Jesus Christ." I mean, there's so many verses. Romans 13:12, "Put on the armor of light." Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13:14, uh, 1 Corinthians 15:53, "Put on the imperishable." First um, uh, Corinthians 15:54, "Put on the imperishable." Um, uh, uh, Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self. Ephesians 6.11, put on the forearm of God. Ephesians 6.14, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, Colossians 3.10, put on the new self who is being renewed in the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Uh, Colossians uh, 3.12, put on a heart of compassion. The only way to put on anything in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, put, to put on any of this is through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's point of this passage is, 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 is not very simple, but it's powerful. It's not very simple, but it's powerful. He says, there are neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people use these this passage out of, context because what they try to do is they try to make up that there are no gender distinctions in the body of christ there are no like there there are absolutely no distinctions between people now let's explain it based on the context so bring me to my last point faith in the gospel must produce a multi-ethnic multi-class transgender sense of community Faith in the gospel must produce multi-ethnic, multi-class, trans- transgender, not, they didn't say transsexual, transgender sense of community. Now let me explain that. Now, now now, what you see here is Paul laying out several premises, right? We'll start with the first one. When Jesus Christ comes and him making um, the believers one flock, the gospel transcends and informs Ethnic and cultural differences. The gospel transcends and informs ethnic and cultural differences. When you go to Acts chapter 13, you see, you see mostly throughout the book of Acts, Jews sending people out. But then when you get to Acts 13:1, you see Gentiles sending Jews out. That's when you know a church has grown. That's when you know a church is developed. When there, and you see all up in the book, uh, in in the um, in the group of those who are in the the, um, the church of Antioch are from different places. You see blacks, you see Asians, you see Europeans, all in one church, one gathering of the saints um, who end up sending out Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas actually, even Paul being an apostle, submitted himself to these saints. Why? What happened with this? It was because of faith. The gospel transcends and informs economic status. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, talks about fronting on people because they ain't got no money. You know what I'm saying? Preaching to the, you know, having a partners conference where you talk to the big wigs and don't talk to the little wigs. Only taking out the lunch, people who got money and can do something for the ministry, but not dealing with people who ain't got nothing. The gospel, that's against the gospel. It's against the gospel to only focus on planting churches in uh, uh, in areas where money can be gained. That's against the gospel. In Christ, there is no distinction. Is it wrong to plant among people that have money? No. But if the only reason to plant and do ministry among them is because of money, that's wrong. So the gospel transcends and informs economic class. Look at Philemon. Somebody said I never even heard of Philemon. It's the last Paul, Pauline book. The whole book of Philemon is about Paul letting him know, look, my man Onesimus is a brother now, so make sure when he come back, you don't be like tripping on him, like acting like, like make sure you Christian of uh, Philemon, but then also make sure you deal with Onesimus as a brother. So in other words, that provides an equality of essence, but different in function. That's what we're going to get to in this last one. The gospel transcends and informs gender differences. The go- I had to qualify these. The gospel transforms and informs, transcends and informs gender differences. Now, when, a, when people come to the Lord Jesus Christ, economic differences don't matter. God is not a respecter of persons of who he saves. God is not a respecter of persons based on what side of the railroad track you grew up on. God is not a respecter of persons in relation to what your gender is. Now, in relation to functioning in the body, God doesn't change his eternal edict of Genesis. What do I mean by that? What happens is, as many people use this verse, to talk about that God is not a respecter of persons in relation to the role of men and women in relation to how they function in the body of Christ. Well, in essence, men and women are equal in essence. Men are no better than women. Women are no better than men. Okay? However, we have different functions. That's why in 1 Peter 3, 7, there's 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 a clause that protects women from abusive men that says if you front on your wife, since you're the weaker vessel, I'm gonna shut down heaven and none of your answers, your prayers gonna be answered. You're gonna be—I don't care if you run around a church, I don't care if you throw money and, and money at the preacher's feet while he preaching. I am not gonna open up heaven and answer your prayers. And so, but, but however, he said, treat her as a co-heir equal. In other words, she's equal in essence. She has the spirit. She has the ability to understand the word of God. She's responsible for discipleship. Um, In other words, uh, the the believer, they they are equal. They're going to the same heaven. There's not going to be men's and women's heaven. As a matter of fact, uh, Matthew says everybody is going to come genderless. I know some of y'all mad about that, but But, but 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 right now, based on God's created order, and we're gonna flesh this out some more, and I'm gonna end here. But this is very important. Men and women do have different functions in the home and in the church. By faith. That means that when when God gives you your role, based on what Paul is saying. You have to have faith in the gospel to execute that role properly. But see, the world teaches us oh, girl, you can do whatever he can do. We think better than anyway. We remember more. Than ever. They're always forgetting something. So God protects you from being overtaken. But God also protects him from you overtaking him. And so the question on the floor is, can we be comfortable with what faith brings in the Lord Jesus Christ? The supremacy of faith beyond everything in our life, beyond our own human works, beyond uh, uh, attempts at personal equality. But the issue is, is that it it says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. So all, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you're black, white, Latino, Asian, other types of internationals, whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter. All of us are equal in essence and function in Christ. Therefore, there are areas of purpose that every believer, no matter where you are economically, where you are culturally, and where you are gender-wise, you're responsible for. There are things that every believer without an office, without whether you're a deacon, whether you're an elder, whether you're going out for whatever, there are responsibilities that are equal to all believers. And because of that, because of that reality of equality through us being Abraham's seed, the promise through Christ by faith, we must take our responsibility for that by faith. This is very, very, very important. Even as us, people are always asking me, how do you make a church multi ethnic? You know, we were in Seattle. God said, how do you make, you know, Epiphany is a multi ethnic church. How you, look, like, what's the, what's the, what's the, how do you do it? And I said, I don't know. I mean, we just we just tried to live out the gospel. We did contextualize it to a specific context, and people of different ethnicities just happen to start coming. I mean, but what, I mean, nah, you can't, it can't be just preaching the gospel. Um, I mean, I mean, the worship—what like are, are you, like are the rappers going back and forth on stage? And what kind of lighting do you have? <laughs> like do you SAG. I mean, what you doing? I'm like, bruh well, come on, man. But my, 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 my point is here, I pray that outside of the Sunday morning gathering, we can show the multi-ethnic reflection of Sunday. Because if we don't get with one another in biblical relationships, we're living against the supremacy of faith in the gospel. If if you don't want to be a small group because you don't want to deal with the ethnic differences and you don't want to be next to someone that doesn't have as much money than you, you're you're living against the gospel. And that's demonic. And so that means that we shouldn't appoint people as elders just because they got loot. Or we can call on him to give every time. No. Equality. And they go, man. We need to make sure we just put a, a Latino in there just because he's Latino. No, if a Latino is gonna be an elder, he better be qualified. We ain't just trying to like make a, a you know a lollipop mixture of dudes up here. We want we want Skittles elders. We want Skittles, M and M's. No. If you ain't, if, if, listen, listen, and I'm talking about this because this is very important in relation to where we're going, is that there, we, we have to really, God is going to use us, like we talked about last time, last week, about the grace of God being upon us. But the question is, is God's grace going to be upon us outside of the gathering of the saints? Will we put our hands to the plow and even work through hard issues of racial issues, we work through them, economic issues gender issues, and still love one another and count one another as brother and sister in Christ. See, that was the issue in Galatians. They wanted to add to people stuff that made them equal with them because they had issues with their own self-worth. So in order to make somebody, you, you need to upgrade if you're going to be a Christian like me. And so I pray that there is a massive amount of equality and how we function as believers, and that Sunday morning will be reflected in our small groups. Sunday mornings will be reflected in how we do man-to-man. Shouldn't be just a bunch of black guys around the table. table, That that we function based on how we do um, a membership. Membership shouldn't have just black people in it. And some of y'all are getting away with coming to Epiphany every Sunday and not getting involved in accountable relationships. I got an issue with that. Because God has an issue with it. But like some of you who have been attending for a while of different ethnicities, it's not good that you just come to Sunday and that's all you want. This thing ain't about just Sunday morning. And don't use being in college as an excuse. I'm in college on my home church. No, you need to be in relationship with believers wherever you are. So I don't care what ethnicity you are or what kind of baggage you got. Bring it all to the table and let's work it out. Because that's what this is talking about, the supremacy of faith. So this is very important that we don't just look like, oh, it's fun. There's different colors of people in here on Sunday, but it's not reflecting that during the week. And that's a gospel issue. And I think it's sin to just attend and not become a part of the flock. In relation to community relationships, I'm going to keep, I know it's been an hour and 15 or something. (laughs) But I'm just telling you that this is, this is, this is, I and Pastor Dudes talk about it all the time. We come in and all we see is black people. And even though we're called, we believe that God has called us as a community to reach uh, those who are influenced by hip-hop culture because God has made us a multi-ethnic community. And I praise God for those whites. And Latinos and uh, uh, people internationally who have already begun saying, "I want to be a part of the life of the ministry." You know, like we got Brother Larry in, in, in coming through. We got we got Sister Liz that, that already came through. We got Ron, and we got we got a lot of different. We got even folk that are multi ethnic, just them by themselves. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like they just they just cover the whole gambit. But but I'm saying this because this is. This is important because if we, like, I'm not saying that every church has to be multi-ethnic. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. Let me say that again. The Bible does not teach that every church has to be multi-ethnic. Guys in all white communities or all black communities, about, how do you get a multi-ethnic church? I say, where are you located? Well, that's what you're going to reflect. And so, and so, and so let's, let's not exalt a multi-ethnic, multicultural, just not, you know, we're not going to exalt that. However, practically, practically, we got to do life together that reflects not making others have to be like us for us to do life together. That's what this passage is about. And it's about faith in Christ. If you bring that to the table, and if you, instead of getting frustrated with one another, pray for one another, God will work out more on your knees and by faith that you can work out by your own hands. I'm going to shut it down. Father, we thank you.